according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 1 tonight. Philippians 1, looking at verses really 15 and 16 and 17, looking at uh, the two different uh, audiences that responded to Paul's imprisonment. And uh, they responded the same way by getting busy with preaching, uh, but they had widely different motivations. And on the one hand, very admirable motivations that we would want to emulate. On the other hand, just horrible motivations that we want nothing to do with. And the fact that Paul praises them uh, is kind of not... He doesn't praise them for their motivation, but he says, you know what, at the end of the day, Christ is being proclaimed. And so for that, we should all be thankful. We can all rejoice if, if Christ is proclaimed. And that's what we deal with there. Uh, it really gets uh, kind of the summary statement shows up in verse 18, where he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. And so that's kind of a, an interesting note of irony at the end of uh, a passage such as that. So, all right, let's get started then with a word of prayer, calling upon the Father and His faithfulness to lead us into truth. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together tonight. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us. And Father, to, uh, to bless our time. We have, uh, uh, in obedience to your word, we have assembled. And now uh, in uh, conformity to your faithfulness, Father, we, uh, we're eager to be fed and eager to be taught. So Father, equip us in that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we want to take few minutes for some questions, and as, um, if there was one that came by email, uh, there might have been, and I failed to write that one down. So uh, I remember you, you sent me one on email, so I'll let Bill re-ask that question, and uh, we'll start with Bill over here on this side, because I don't remember uh, either. I saw it when it came in on email, and I said, oh, I need to copy that over to my Logos note file, and, and I failed to do that. You need a minute to find it. I can, I can tell a joke, actually. We have, this is National Joke Day, right, for Tell a Joke Day. Did, um, I think I shared one on a Sunday night, but since no one comes on Sunday night, you didn't hear it. Um, did you hear that recently the, the top admiral of the Swedish Navy, did you hear this already? The, the, the number one admiral in the Swedish Navy, he just painted barcodes on the side of every ship in the Swedish Navy. The entire fleet now has a big barcode painted on the side of the side of the ship. You know why they did that? So that whenever the fleet returns to port, they can Scandinavian. <laughs> All right. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm... We should probably open with another word of prayer. <laughs> give a chance to confess. All right. Yes, sir. Um, in Mark ten chapter uh, Mark chapter ten verse twenty one. Yes, sir. It talks about a, a, a rich young ruler that approached Christ and uh, basically was wanting to to follow him. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. 
and come, follow me. My question is, and it might be what uh, Christ said in the last part of the sentence, is what was the one thing that that, uh, that person lacked? Yeah, the one thing that he lacked was, um, was giving away all his stuff. Okay? And, and this is a case of, it's, it's interesting, Christ uses this, um, the God of truth just made a statement that it is not true strictly speaking. Uh, but he accepted a premise. He accepted the premise of the question that you can earn eternal life, that you can earn heaven, right? And this man was so self-righteous and so convinced that he'd done everything and he was ready to you know, accept his, his first class ticket to, to glory because clearly he deserves it. And, uh, and so Jesus, for the sake of the argument, accepts the premise and then says, you know what? There's just one, one tiny little thing that's left, okay? And so we get that. We understand that. It's not, it's not a malicious lie. It's not a deceit. It's just it's a means of communication by which, for the sake of argument, you accept a premise and then you offer a consideration. And then in so doing, then his eyes are open and he's grieving and he's lacking. And, the, and what's interesting, the point is, no matter how perfect we think we are, all of us are sinners. We all fall short. We all have one thing, you know, minimum. I've got, you know, thousands. But we have one thing at least that's going to keep any human out of heaven because we're all fallible and sinners and, and unworthy. So um, anyway, so the one thing that he lacked was he had to give away all his possessions. And then Jesus said, if you do that, you know, then that's the last piece of the puzzle and you get to earn your way to heaven. Okay? And obviously it's not true. And it's a, it's a means of communicating a truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I got one more question. If I okay. um, I've been studying Jude. Mm-hmm. and uh, I was in Logos Bible Software and was trying to see if something worked, and I accidentally clicked on Called, uh-huh. which uh, brought up the Lexham, uh, believe the Bible commentary, and they were actually going into great detail on the specific of the word called. Uh-huh. And it had mentioned, basically, uh, one of the commentary uh, gentlemen had mentioned that even though it was even though it was done differently, whereas you know the students would... F- uh, would seek out the rabbis to be disciples of that rabbi in that time, that the only successful um, disciples that Christ got were the ones that he actually chose and not the ones that said, I'll follow you. Now, mm-hmm. I'm referring it to what they called the call stories. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was kind of considering if, if thinking, could we consider Mark 10, 21, as one of as one of those called stories, I wouldn't. No, no, I wouldn't at all. And also, I uh, I dispute the premise that this passage or First Corinthians or any coleto passage of the of the epistles uh, has any um, uh, debt of origin to the rabbinic practices or to the Jewish practices of the day. I believe that election is, is sovereignty from the eternity past and is not dependent upon the rabbinic practices of, of first century Pharisees. So um, yes, it was very common to try to accumulate as many disciples as you could. It's very prestigious the more you have um, and and so forth. And, and, and yes, Christ was not doing that. There were people coming to him, uh, but more so he was seeking them out as in the case of the fishermen and the tax collector and so forth. He went to them and said, follow me. Uh, so that was definitely not a common practice on the part of the, the Pharisees or the, the rabbis of his generation. Nevertheless, I, I, uh, I would dispute those commentaries and those other um, scholarly approaches to kaleo 
and, and ecclesis and any of those other, other terms. So, because our calling is from the foundation of the world. And that's far bef- before any of those other traditions ever got started. At a later date, maybe sometime we can Skype yeah, yeah. and talk more about them. Uh-huh. I'm kind of interested in that. Uh-huh. Okay, other questions tonight? Front row on this other side and the back row on this other side. So we'll start up here with Chuck and then we'll go to, to uh, Eliezer. Yes, sir. I believe this morning you talked about, you mentioned Philippians 3.19 as far as uh, your God being your appetite. Right. Wasn't there a passage that you also discussed from Colossians? I'm asking. I'm wondering what that passage was. I for, I'd forgotten. A Colossians passage about the same in the same topic. Um, I don't think so. Oh, maybe that's why I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't see a Colossians passage on uh, on my notes. It could have come off the top of my head. There's some scary things that come from there. All right, we'll give Eliezer and then uh, uh, Lewis. You have a question too? Okay. My question is from First Peter uh, three nineteen, uh-huh. um, wherein he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Uh-huh. Um, was wondering what your abridged take on this verse was, and secondly, is there ever a mention anywhere else about this? In the no, Bible? it's not mentioned anywhere else, uh, not in Scripture. There's tons of Catholic traditions and other legends that came up in, in Middle Ages and church history and so forth. Um, but we taught this, this was during the three days that his body was in the grave before he, he rose again on, on Easter Sunday. Um, and we taught this, I think over two lessons or three in the Life of Christ series and went into some detail because this is a proclamation, this is a preaching. And, um, and what's interesting is that, um, so he was put to dead, uh, death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which also he went, that is in spirit, not in body, but in spirit, he went and made proclamation. What, what kind of proclamation? Was it just a, a, a nanny, 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 I win, you lose kind of taunting? Was it, but what, and, and the, the language of preaching that's used there is typically one in which a response is being elicited. Well, how do you glean a response from a departed spirit that's in, that's in the underworld? You know, what kind of response could you, could you glean? And who are these spirits? And it says, who once were disobedient when uh, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And so this goes back to the flood, to the pre-flood time, to the, uh, to the fallen angels of the Nephilim of Noah's day. And, uh, and so there's a couple of different ways that you can approach that. And I didn't, if you listen to the messages, you'll find um, that I didn't want to make a, a very dogmatic conclusion and insist upon it, but I did lay out the usual understanding and then maybe another thing to consider. And the more I've been thinking about it, that other view to consider is, is starting to become more and more compelling in my mind. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep chewing on it in the, in the uh, upcoming days. But um, it, is, it is interesting that they are in prison uh, and, and, and in a place of confinement as opposed to eternal destiny or as opposed to what we would normally think of as hell. Hell's not usually thought of as a prison, and the lake of fire certainly isn't. Um, so anyway, there's, you'll, you'll see that when you get to the website and you find the, the things there. But good question, though. I appreciate that. All right, Lewis. Um, yeah, this question comes actually from Luke 23.12. Luke 23.12? And I was kind of wondering, um, 
what you knew about the background of this. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's some history involved where these guys didn't like each other, and now they like each other. Uh-huh. All because of the fact, we know it's not just because they exchanged Jesus back and forth. Uh, kind of is. It kind of is, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Edersheim writes about this. Uh, Josephus wrote about this. Uh, that they had been bitter enemies, Herod and Pilate, and I don't remember right now why, but there was something, and uh, usually it's something trivial, you know, that causes people to be mad at one another. But then interestingly enough, this event with the trial of Christ and the back and forth there, it actually sparked something between them and they became friends ever after. And so to me it's kind of curious also, we see the same thing played out in our generation, that we have people that, that hate us, and the only thing they really have in common is they hate Christ, right? Whether they're, they're, they're Buddhist or Muslim or, or atheist or, or whatever they are. And, and the one thing they have in common, of course, is they're hostile to biblical Christianity and the Word of God and, and, and Christ. And so it's, it's kind of interesting to me that that, that passage almost becomes a, a typology for, hmm. you know, the, the church age. or well, I was thinking that, that maybe... Pilate was showing a measure of respect because Herod was in town and Jesus was a Galilean. And then oh, no, no, no. Pilate was just getting out of trouble. Trying to yeah. get out of trouble. Pilate was finding a way to make his wife happy. His wife had a bad night of dreams and said, don't have nothing to do with that righteous man. And she wanted the whole trial off, right? And then he was trying to release him and the religious leaders weren't having it. And so Pilate was a little bit upset. And, and then when he learned that Jesus was a Galilean, he was, he was happy as could be. He's like, wow. This is my chance. Let's let's transfer this trial over to to uh, to Herod, and and he could be done. So that was that was really the motivation on that. Yeah. All right. Well, y'all had great questions tonight. I appreciate that. So uh, I'll get you first next week. How's that sound? All right. If you can't wait an entire week, then uh, shoot me an email in the meantime, and we'll uh, we'll handle that from there. All right, Philippians chapter 1, as we're looking at verses 14 through 17. And I'll just skip ahead to the slide that we want to see here. Probably there. Paul's progress in the gospel and his well-known imprisonment produced goads to action. And this is the neat thing, the goad to action. That, uh, you know, what is it that finally gets believers off their hindquarters and into, into gear, Okay. In uh, that we have the language of a goad in Hebrews 10, we have language of a goad in First Peter, other passages. The idea is is that at a certain point in your Christian walk, you realize that the the ministry of the Word of God and the ministry of Christ is uh, not a spectator sport. That we have a gift and we're expected to employ our gift and to pursue ministry and be actively involved in in uh, gifts, ministries, and effects. And so uh, this happens here and. Um, it says in verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so it became a goad, it became a persuasion. And uh, we're going to talk about patho again tonight as we've discussed it in different contexts, but that's what we have here. It's not really trusting in the Lord. I don't like trust as a translation of patho. And, and there are different lexicons that like to like to render it that way, but uh, as we've looked at it, and every usage we have in the New Testament, we haven't really found a context where trust is is the best way to deal with that. That it's consistently uh, a persuasion. It's consistently that somebody has been speaking or communicating or influencing, and now your thinking is starting to turn 
uh, because of that persuasion. And uh, that's what it really comes down to. And so most of the brethren being persuaded, that's what we're talking about, as a, uh, a goad to action. And, and you can have some fun with it if you ever study the oxuno terminology or the oxus uh, language of a goad or an ox goad or what happens when you poke the oxen in the rump with the, with the sharp stick. That that uh, it's that it's not a pleasant experience. The oxen doesn't like it, and it it excel. That's the gas pedal of the ancient world, right? That that causes the the oxen to to speed up and 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 quit. You know, as long as you quit poking them, he'll he'll keep going. And uh, and and face it, we need that. We're 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 dumb oxen. We're just we're sinners. We're stubborn. We're human, and uh, and we fall into that complacency mode that sin would take us into every time. And God's got a marvelous way. To take that sharp pointed stick and, and, and get us in gear. And so we that's what we need to do. And uh and so this is what we see here. Uh, most of the brethren, for most, and you know, however many is most, it's it's more than are not, but most of the brethren, and and that too I think is significant. No matter what happens, there's always gonna be some uh stragglers or some remnant that never get it in gear, no matter what they see, no matter what they hear, no matter whatever else happens. But these manifest chains, these chains that are manifestly in Christ, they become persuasive. And Jesus Christ uses these. He persuasively emboldens them and uh, gets them out of their comfort zone is how we would say today. It just emboldens them. It gives them a daring. It gives them an audacity. It gives them kind of a sense that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Just a, a boldness or a daring or a courage. Okay, uh, an aud- I like the term audacity with respect to uh, with respect to this term, because um, it can even approach that in uh, depending on context. This term can be completely carnal. It could be a, a bad kind of daring, like how dare another and take one another to court in First Corinthians six. You're suing your fellow brother before an unbelieving judge. How dare you? And that's the language that that we have here in in this uh, in this terminology. So uh, this is what we were looking at. Allowing Christ to persuade allows Christ to embolden. And I think that tandem of verbs is significant. So patho uh, in tandem with tolmao. You have T-O-L-M-A-O, tolmao. And that's the verb for daring. That's the verb for audacity. That's the verb uh, that is used in a lot of different contexts related to um, uh, kind of a, a an audacity, really, just stepping out and 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 speaking to somebody, and and who do you think you are, kind of a thing. I'll show you the the verses here in a moment that uh, that illustrate that. But keep in mind these these are these are we know the difference between an active verb and a passive verb, and I think this is vital for our application. It's not just a geek language study. I think it's it hits us where we are. If it's a an active voice imperative, then God expects us to do something, to actively be the agent of a, of an activity. But if it's a passive voice imperative, that makes all the difference in the world. Because in the passive voice, we're not the ones doing it, right? In the passive voice, we're receiving the effects of the verb. So in, in a sense, uh, how do you obey a passive imperative? That's, that's, that's kind of interesting because in a sense, you can obey by not doing anything, right? You can obey by just letting it happen. And that's what we're commanded to do. The fact is, sometimes not doing something is the hardest thing that God ever asked us to do. God asks us to let something happen and our humanity uh, doesn't want to let that happen. Okay, 
And so uh, obedience to a passive imperative is, is unique in, in so many ways uh, because it requires us to, you know, to let some not put obstacles in the way, to not hinder something from happening and, and, and that. So uh, a lot of times I've used, you've probably been here when I've used those illustrations, uh, uh, punching illustrations or hugging illustrations or kissing or whatever. I mean, however friendly you want to be. But you can, you can uh, talk to two people that are sitting side by side and you can tell one to do something in the active voice, and you can tell the other one to do the exact same thing, but in the passive voice, right? And then you can, you can illustrate that, and it, and it makes sense. And, and um, I did this in Corpus Christi a while back, and there were two cousins, teenagers, 14-year-olds, sitting there in the, in the, in the uh, congregation, and they loved it because I had told one to punch the other one, and I had told the other one to be punched, and uh, and so yeah, they were they were all excited for that and uh, ready to uh, you know to punch. Um, but that's the thing, right? And of course, the kid that was going to get punched was not as excited as the kid that got to do the punching. Clearly, you know. So, but that too illustrated the point that sometimes a passive imperative is not the easiest one to obey. Uh, you mean you want me to let that happen? Okay. And uh, so the idea of being persuaded, and, and patho as a verb is remarkable because it's, it's, uh, you, can, you can persuade for hours and hours and hours in the act of voice, and the person you're trying to persuade will never ever be persuaded in the passive voice. Because uh, it comes right down to the fact that uh, no matter what evidence, no matter what, um, they're just not going to listen. They won't be persuaded no matter what. And, uh, and, and that's how God's designed it as us being vol- volitional beings. So, um, but if you want to be emboldened, uh, then it requires this persuasion. I don't see any other way around it in this text or other texts that, uh, that to be emboldened, uh, first you must be persuaded. You must have Christ persuade you as to uh, His will or His plan or a, a mission assignment or an open door ministry. And, uh, and so forth. So again, that's verse 14. Most of the brethren being persuaded by the Lord because of my chains have far more courage, that is, have been tolmaod uh, abundantly, abounding in, uh, in uh, tolmao, um, far more courage to speak the word of God afabos, without fear, fearlessly. And uh, being persuaded and being emboldened just took the, the fear of man right, uh, right off the table. Okay? And Sunday we spent our time looking at this tomao verb um, and looking at some cognate adjectives, but uh, this daring is nearly an audacity. It, it should be that kind of presumption, like how dare you, right? How dare you? Who do you think you are? How dare you? Okay? And, and if you think about it, isn't that any ministry? Right? I mean, what business do I have being a pastor? How dare I? Who do I think I am? How dare I preach the Word of God? Who do I think I am that I can stand before God's people and say, thus saith the Lord? And yet, as Christ has persuaded, and as Christ has emboldened, and as Christ has equipped, and as Christ has called, He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are. He finds the biggest you know, doofus He can and says, here, feed the congregation. And that's supposed to be emboldening. That's supposed to set an example and go, wow. Man, if God can do that through Pastor Bob, just think. You know, He could do 
much more with anybody else. Okay, that's that's the point. And and so everyone should be encouraged on on that basis. And so it's, it is an audacity. And depending on the context, it does cross the line into something carnal. I think Jesus taught that example about prayer and said, here's a widow and here's an unrighteous judge and she keeps nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. And finally he's just sick of it. He answers her prayer to make her go away. And that's, you know, we, we read a story like that and we think that's, that's, that's not right. We, you know, we don't like that in our humanity. We say, well, I wouldn't put up with that if there's one of my kids doing that or, you know, a, a deacon or a church member calling me up 20 times a day and, you know, at a certain point you get irritated. But, but Jesus said, that's the pattern for prayer. We're supposed to bug him like that constantly. And if we're not that pesky in our prayer life, then we're not praying enough. That's the, the illustration that he used. And so this kind of audacity, this kind of daring is, uh, is kind of neat to consider. So uh, we looked at these verses. I'm not going to go back through them, but um, you'll, you'll find several of them in there centered on conflict between Christ and the Pharisees. They were asking him all these questions and then he kept turning the tables on them and then they had to stop and they wouldn't dare ask him another question after that because, uh, you know, they were out of their league when they were challenging him on, on doctrinal issues. Um, other things like Acts 5, I love Acts 5 uh, because those are the disciples that were called uneducated, ignorant men, that uh, they were illiterate, you know, as far as the Pharisees were concerned because if you don't go to our school then you might as well not have gone to any kind of school. You're just a, an ignorant buffoon. And uh, then they realized, wow, these guys, they know their doctrine. What are they... You know, they've been with Jesus, and I love that testimony in, uh, in Acts 5.13. Some of those other examples, 1 Corinthians 6, not 21, but 6.1, I meant to fix that also. I did fix the Strong's number for Patho, 39.82. I failed to fix uh, 1 Corinthians 6.21. There is no 6.21, it's 6.1 when he says, how dare you go to court with, a, uh, with another believer? And uh, that's just outrageous. All right. Now, I think of all of these things, uh, the best example we're going to find is the example of Moses. Um, curiously enough, because he didn't have a spiritual gift, he is not, a, he is not an illustration of a, of a New Testament saint, a church age believer, but he is an illustration for what it means to be persuaded, to be emboldened, to be placed into ministry uh, against every objection he ever could make. He made a lot of objections. Uh, that he wasn't qualified, that he wasn't able, that, he was, that there were better people than him. And so again and again and again, I think um, the reason why we have this over really three chapters, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 6 of Exodus is, uh, is interesting to me. It's almost like it's a timeless principle that really um, crosses any dispensational boundary. Um, so we can look at these real quick. You're probably familiar with them anyway, which means we don't have to take a whole lot of time to, uh, to prove this point or to to illustrate this. The greatest, this is subpoint three, and all of these one, two, and three are all subpoints under um, A. Uh, but the greatest illustration of this concept comes from Moses. What concept? The concept of daring and audacity and being persuaded and having been persuaded by Christ, then being emboldened in spite of your personality, in spite of what you would uh, prefer and, and uh, so forth. And, uh, and so we see this here in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 4, and Exodus 6. Why does it keep coming back up again, again and again and again? Because I think Moses keeps complaining and he keeps objecting. And it's like Paul asked three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed from him. 
And why do you keep asking that? The answer is no. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what the Lord is calling. All right, Exodus 3. Um, of course, uh, at the end of chapter 2 is when he flees to Midian and he's going to live uh, out there. If you're familiar with the outline of Moses' life, he was 40, 40 years old when he fled Egypt. All right, And he ministers in, in the wilderness for 40 years. And, uh, and then he goes back and he delivers Israel and he leads them in through the wilderness for 40 years. So Moses, is, his life, 120 years, is broken down into thirds. 40, 40, 40, right? And it's, 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 it's kind of neat to preach it like that and understand what God does that in, uh, in those things. Particularly since his first 40 years, he was pretty special, right? <laughs> he was raised in Pharaoh's house, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was educated, highly educated, and all these things. He had all the, the treasures of Egypt. He had a military conquest, according to uh, the Jewish legends and things. Um, it's uh, plus the movie, you know, uh, he had a military conquest in, uh, in things. Um, and so, uh, was it, I think it was either Chuck Swindoll or Charles Stanley, one of them, said Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, right? And even took it upon himself to try to, he killed an Egyptian, he was going to deliver Israel, and, and uh, of course they didn't want any part of that. So he had 40 years thinking he was somebody, then he had 40 years thinking he was a nobody, you know, in the shepherding sheep and serving his father-in-law and, and really in obscurity. 40 years thinking he was somebody, four years thinking he was a nobody, and then 40 years watching what God can do with a nobody. See, isn't that beautiful? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat concept. So here he is in chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, Moses pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Notice the priest of Midian, he's a Gentile priest and uh, with doctrine and uh, probably the source of the Job uh, material that uh, Moses put in the Hebrew canon. And uh, anyway, so while he's there, here comes the angel of the Lord. And uh, that's the uh, Malach, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. It's a theophany of Jesus Christ before his incarnation as the God-man. And um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Okay? And that got his attention. It gets all of our attention. That's not normal. If a bush is on fire, then it's consumed. That's what happens. Fire consumes its, uh, its fuel. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. I mean, if you could have a fire that never consumed its fuel, uh, you just solved the energy crisis right there, right? We, we have uh, perpetual energy. Um, and so this is when the Lord calls him, and here I am. And so uh, holy ground and, and these things. Now, in the process of this, the Lord says, um, uh, you have a job. I just hired you. <laughs> um, he said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. This is uh, Exodus 3, 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I came down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, this is your part now, Moses, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And after, you know, 10 verses of all of this, you would think 
Moses would be excited, right? And, and, and humble and amazed. And no, he's, he's, uh, he's fearful. He doesn't want the job and he doesn't feel qualified or able. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he thinks it's, uh, it's an issue on his worth, on his qualifications, on his, you know, who am I? And so in verse 12 he said, certainly I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And I love that. I love that because, you know, you, sometimes believers are weak in their faith and whatever, and so they, they want a sign. You know, Gideon wanted a fleece or whatever. We want a sign. And so it's curious that God says, all right, you want a sign? Here you go. But Moses can't see that sign until he obeys. <laughs> you know, when you bring them out of Egypt then you're going to find this is the mountain that, uh, that you're going to worship. And, uh, and uh, so then you'll know that, uh, that uh, you can do this because you will have already done it. <laughs> and uh, I love that. To me that's, that's a, neat, a neat principle. So uh, we have the objection there in verse 11. So the point being though is Moses needs to be persuaded. He needs to be persuaded. And part of that persuasion is a promise and part of that persuasion is, is uh, an assurance uh, part of that persuasion is an increased intimacy, which I find uh, interesting as well. Notice though, it's not just uh, how dare you question me, shut up and do what I tell you. Okay, God, the, the, the Lord's much more patient than that and He actually works. Uh, he gives a promise, you know, this is where you're going to worship. Uh, so He's got that to look forward to. And then He tells them the significance of I am. And we have really a, a depth of things here that's... that's uh, important to study, I think. Moses said to God in verse 13, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You know, uh, other than the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, is there a, is there a personal name? Is there something? And, and it's interesting that he would ask for that. Jacob asked for the same thing when he was wrestling with the angel and said, Tell me your name. And and uh, the angel wouldn't tell Jacob that that uh, when he got renamed uh, Israel. But here now, God said to Moses, uh, I am who I am. And this uh, declaration of existence is beautiful. This is, the, this is the, the prime theological foundation for anything we study in terms of God's absolute essence, the fact that He is pure actuality, that He is who He is, and He always has been, the, the I am. And so um, uh, in Hebrew it's Aye, which is the basis for understanding Yahweh. Um, but the Aye of I am, the only self-existent being, the, the uncaused cause of everything else. This is, this is who they're worshiping. So uh, he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am uh, has sent me to you. Aye has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all knew the name Yahweh. Yahweh was not new. But what was new was the significance of Aye behind Yahweh. The, the significance of the I Am behind the Lord, behind Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, as we sometimes pronounce it. And uh, so this comes up as well. So part of this persuasion, what does it take to persuade you? What does it take to persuade you? For Christ to persuade you and for Christ to embolden you. What does it take? I think we're seeing elements of it right here. 
I think it takes uh, an expectation of what to look forward to in the future. I think it takes a better understanding of who the Lord is. I think that those things will, will come together and, and serve to persuade any of us, will serve to embolden any of us. How could they not? Persuade us and embolden us the more we know about our Savior, the more we know who He is, and, uh, and the more we uh, anticipate what He is about to do in and through us for His good pleasure. So there's the, uh, the illustration there. Well, it continues, and uh, we get down now at the end of the chapter. And, and this really seems uh, pretty detailed, uh, as God you know, says, furthermore, here's what you're going to do and all these things. He really gets a, a, a list of things that He can expect, miracles and plagues and plunder, and, uh, and it just sounds like it's going to be easy as anything. Why not do this, right? This sounds, uh, this sounds pretty simple. Um, goes on to say, I will grant, in verse 21, 321, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go out empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. You will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. And I tell you, by the time the ten plagues are over with, every Egyptian that's still alive is happy to see the Jews go. And they're giving them everything they can want. Here, take this, take this, take this. And so, you know, we'd like to turn to chapter 4 now and read something nice like, you know, Moses said, all right, Lord, I'm ready, let's go, let's, let's do this. But no, there's more complaints. Moses said, well, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So he still has these doubts. He's not yet persuaded, and because he's not yet persuaded, he's not yet emboldened. And uh, some other things there. I think we can, uh, pastors or any, anybody in ministry, evangelists, Sunday school teachers, you know, is it, is it really an issue of believing me? <laughs> Moses all complained, well, what if they don't believe me? Well, that's the wrong object of faith, isn't it? Yahweh is the object of faith. God's the object of faith, not you. You're just a tool, you're a messenger, don't sweat it. They don't have to believe you, they've got to believe the Lord. That's a big difference. Anyway, so he gets a sign. Uh, what is that in your hand? He said a staff, so you throw it on the ground, threw it on the ground, it becomes a serpent. And so anyway, he gets, uh, he gets a sign here, he gets um, something tangible that he can do. Evidently, this is now in his volition, in his power, anytime he wants, he can throw that staff down and it becomes a serpent. And uh, aspects there. Um, then he gets another sign, put your hand in your bosom, verse 6, put his hand into his bosom and took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Okay, Something else that he apparently can do now, you know, an ability, a superpower, something that he can do uh, from time to time whenever he needs uh, to encourage others or possibly whenever he needs to encourage himself that, uh, hey, Lord's still with me. So he sticks his hand in his shirt and brings it back. Yeah, okay, yep, leprosy. And uh, stick it back in again and comes back out again. So it's, uh, you know, and are these little parlor tricks? What are these? These are works of divine power. And does it seem, does it seem, um, I don't know, flippant? Does it seem a little bit um, kind of juvenile? I mean, why, why do something like this? Why, you know, well, what does it take to persuade Moses? What does it take to persuade us? You know, um, Anything's an act of divine power, whether it's parting the Red Sea or sticking your hand in your shirt, you know. Um, it's the same God that can do all this stuff. Do you trust in God or not? All right, more complaints in verse 10. 
Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. I'm not really a public speaker, you know. Um, never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. And I wonder, is that what he's all worried about? Is that what he's all worried about? You know, I mean, he's 40 years away from the politics of Egypt. You know, maybe, yeah, back in the day he was tops of his class and he was right there and everything was, but, you know, what's he been doing lately? Okay? And you might imagine, you know, there, there could be some insecurities there or whatever, fear that, you know, you go back to that previous life and it's just it's not the same. But anyway, we don't know. We'll we just read what it says here. I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since I have spoken to your servant, or since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And um, and then so the Lord says, oh, is that it? What a, what a minimal complaint, because you know what? Um, I'm the creator of man's mouth. How about that? <laughs> you've, you've brought your complaint to the right source, so quit worrying about it. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf and seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So don't sweat it. If you're all wrapped up about ability, what's why? God's called you. You think God's stupid? Did God, uh, well, what's God supposed to say here? Oh, you know, that's right. I, I, you know, I totally forgot that. Moses, you know, man, thanks. I was, what was I thinking? I should have called Aaron in the first place. You're, you're clearly not up to this. Okay? No, God is not dumb. God knows he's calling Moses for a reason. He's not calling Aaron for a reason. And um, anyway, is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you were to say. And he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And that's, that was kind of the final complaint in the Sparks' anger. And uh, he says, all right, fine. You're going to get a partner now and, and uh, Aaron the Levite. So um, those aspects. We get to chapter 6. Moses, aren't you done yet? Why do you keep complaining? And, uh, and it's interesting because he's already had an encounter with, Moses, uh, with Pharaoh here in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and things are getting worse. <laughs> okay? And uh, more persuasion is needed in chapter 6. By the time we get to chapter 5, Moses returns to the Lord and says, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? And, um, you know, maybe it's not what we would have expected. Do you, need a, do you need a failure early in your ministry to remind you that it's not about you, that, that God's the one that's at work, so just relax and, and don't sweat the failure? Uh, and is it really a failure? We'll, uh, we'll deal with this uh, some more in Proverbs because we have um, a verse there in verse 21. Uh, the Jews are, are yelling at Moses. Uh, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. And that's a, that's a stinking verb. It's a verb for stinking, and it's a bit of a mix match because you don't stink in somebody's eyes, you stink in somebody's nose. But there's an idiom there, and uh, we have it coming up in Proverbs 13 about, about uh, the wicked and, and how they stink. So we'll be dealing with that. And so here's Moses' complaint. Lord, why did you ever send me? Lord, you sent the wrong person. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. And I'm just convinced that he's, you know, a failure, a loser. But uh, God knows what he's doing, see. And in some respects, if you've ever studied this out and study Pharaoh and how he hardened his heart and how God then hardened his heart even more and 
this whole process. It was all necessary. So then in chapter 6, the last objection comes here in verse 12. Um, uh, let's see. Almost seems like in 6 9, uh, Moses is trying to speak to Israel, but they're not listening to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the sons of Israel, go out of this land. But Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Still blaming himself as if somehow uh, he's the one to blame for not uh, accomplishing what the Lord wants for him to do here. So, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, gave them a charge to the sons of Israel, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And uh, we have the illustration there. So anyway, I think it comes down to this, and I think it comes down to our attitude. Do we expect that these failures are... uh, Do we expect that God, that Jesus Christ as the head of the church is so um, useless at what He does that we can thwart His will? That we can, if we fail, that we're not serving Him in this capacity? All right? No, he knows what he's doing. And he's assigned you to a task. And that task may not have visible results. Not right away, maybe not ever. Is that going to discourage you? Um, You know, what if you don't see the results until heaven? Are you going to stay faithful here on earth? A lot of times, the different ministries that uh, that we're called to, we don't see the the, the big tangible results. And uh, I think these patterns are important for us to, uh, to hold on to. So we have uh, Moses there to look to for further illustrations. I'm getting back now to Philippians. I want to touch on these two attitudes here and really spotlight the good side first. So if I may, I'm going to blend... Um, I'm going to blend these verses together into a single statement. Daring to speak without fear, verse 14. Because of goodwill, verse 15. Out of love, knowing God's appointments, verse 16. From pure motives, verse 17. See, as we go through these verses, we see both sides and he does a lot of back and forth, describing, well, on the one hand, these guys, on the other hand, those guys. On the one hand, these guys, on the other hand, those guys. And so I want to take both crowds and I want to focus on each one, one at a time. And so in so doing, we're going to kind of synthesize a string of, a string of verses here. And we're going to put some concepts together. And I hope to save some time, we're not going to stop and do word studies in each verse or in each, each concept. I think we'll, we'll still be very edified if we look at it as a whole and then give some uh, cross-reference passages just shortly, short cross-reference passages that will help to illustrate and explain what we're looking at here. So uh, again, most, verse 14, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment are being persuaded by the Lord because of my chains have far more courage to speak the Word of God, and here's our expression now, without fear. Without fear. Okay? And that's one of the things that we're going to put on the ledger on the side of the the good side of this ledger. If we're breaking it down in between people with the right motives and people with the wrong motives, um, we're going to put the 
the fearless speakers here on the good side of this ledger. Um, daring to speak without fear because of goodwill or good pleasure. Okay, What do we mean by goodwill? Is that their own goodwill or God's goodwill? What is this? Um, that's verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. I'm not going to talk about them tonight at all, but that's the other side, the flip side of this coin, and we'll get to them. But for tonight, let's just focus on the good side. Some also from goodwill. All right? What's that about? What does it mean to serve from goodwill? What is goodwill? What is, um, it, well, it's good pleasure is what it is, and, and it's usually used of God. Very rarely is it used of man. And so it's curious to me in this context as you exegete this verse and you start to examine, well, is it, is it actually expressly said whose goodwill is, is in view? Could it be God's goodwill that's in view? As, uh, I mean, clearly the envy and strife are coming from the source of, the, of the, uh, that, that terrible crowd, but the goodwill, is that coming from the source of the good crowd or is that somebody else's goodwill? I think it's worth exploring. Some also from goodwill. That is the good pleasure of God. And, uh, and it's curious to me because if, if one of the definitions of Christianity is trying to learn what is pleasing to God, then really we're, we're centering on a definition of the church age. We're centering on what does it mean to be saved and to be growing in grace and knowledge. And that uh, to me is extraordinary. I did list um, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians. I listed a lot of verses here on goodwill. Uh, one specifically I didn't, I should have put on there was Colossians. See, here I go again. A Colossians reference that's not on my paper. Um, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you something here because this is a definition of what it means to be a believer in the church age. In, in some respects it's a nice thumbnail sketch for Austin Bible Church or any church that's uh, serving Christ in this, uh, in this capacity. Colossians 1.9 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. That's the concept. If we're here to be pleasing to the Father, that's goodwill. That's good pleasure. That's His good pleasure, and His good pleasure should become our good pleasure to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So there you have it. Colossians 1 verses 9 through 12. It's a definition of the church age. Right there's a description of what do we do now that we're saved? Well, we grow. We're trying to learn what's pleasing to God. We're bearing fruit in every good work. This is what we're doing. This is what every assembly should be doing in, uh, in the church age. So yeah, there's that expression of good pleasure to please Him in all respects. And so when we see it here in Philippians 1.15 that there, this one crowd, <coughs> the positive example that are doing this from goodwill, okay? From goodwill. Uh, there's, there, are, there are some significant um, principles to be applied there. And we're going to get into them. We're going to get into them from uh, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Hebrews. We're going to get to them from a lot of standpoints. But
But I want us to understand, because this is, I think this is something that gets perverted. This is something, that we talked about this with sincerity. This is something that, well, my heart was in the right place. Well, I had the best of intentions. Well, I was trying to do good. Okay? And, and the, the, the pathetic thing is that unbelievers can kind of mimic that. Unbelievers can, can kind of be moral and do good things and, and, and then throw it in our face and say, I'm better than you, look what I'm doing. And, uh, and say, see, I don't have to be a Christian to be moral. And, and they can throw those things at us. And I think they get a lot of fuel for that based on texts like this and our inability to articulate that goodwill is a deeper concept than just being nice, all right? Human niceness. That there is actually a concept there. What is it that pleases the Father? What is it that causes Him to look upon Jesus Christ and say, behold, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? What causes Him to look at you and me and say, well done, good and faithful servant? If we're going to be well-pleasing to our Father, it's got to be according to the standard of Scripture. It's got to be according to this doctrine and these principles of good pleasure. Okay, And to water that down or to minimize that or to substitute some kind of human morality or human goodness is it's just it's, it's tragic. And, and Christian churches are letting them get away with it. And Christian churches are actually kind of they're marching down that path themselves. Viewing, uh, basically viewing Christianity as just a moralistic, therapeutic, deism kind of thing. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Now this goodwill, this good pleasure, will come back again in, uh, in chapter 2. In fact, in one of the most famous verses ever, where it says, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, of His good pleasure. Okay? There it is. And that's the same concept we have here. So, uh, I don't think you can separate it. I think uh, if, you know, some from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill, is that their own goodwill? No, that's the Father working in and through them to will and to do of His good pleasure. And that's fundamentally what it comes down to. When you and I allow ourselves to be persuaded and allow ourselves to be uh, emboldened, what we're really doing is allowing ourselves to let God work in and through us. Uh, getting ourselves out of the way giving God the maximum freedom to, uh, to employ us in whatever capacity He sees fit. Alright, so we'll deal with those things as well. Um, goodwill, out of love, knowing God's appointments. And uh, so here when we get to verse 16, and again, we're going to kind of ignore the part of, the, of this passage that applies to the, to the bad crowd, and we're just spotlighting the... Uh, the good crowd. Verse 16 is all good. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Okay? And this is, this is beautiful, because this reinforces what we studied earlier in the sense of your love abounding still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Because here is love that we see. It becomes a motivation for what they're doing. But it's a love that's not centered in the emotions. It's love that's centered in the intellect. It's love that's centered in an apprehension of the will of God, knowing that I am appointed, knowing God's appointments. See, if you are on board with the plan of God, when you know God's appointments, when you know that this is, when these chains are manifestly in Christ, then how do you disagree with that? You can't disagree with that. You've got to get on board and be excited about that and say, yes, this is the will of God. This is what He's doing. And so knowing that, then uh, orients appropriately, I think, to the abounding love. 
Uh, he wanted love to abound more and more. And, uh, and so here it is. So we have goodwill. We have love. We have a recognition of the plan of God in knowing God's appointments. We'll have some things there to say about appointments. And then finally, from pure motives. The last aspect here in verse 17. Uh, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Okay? And we'll look at that side of the equation when we spotlight the, the wrong crowd on this. But the, uh, the good crowd, notice, rather than from pure motives. We're going to spotlight pure motives there. And so I took all of those descriptions and I blended them together into kind of a synthesis there from 14, 15, 16, and 17. And this is, um, this is, the, this is the positive example. And this is what Paul sets forth as a marvelous example and it's one that, that we could emulate as well. We want to be fearless. We want to uh, be serving the goodwill of God the Father. Uh, obviously we want to operate in the realm of love with the full knowledge of, uh, of the plan of God there, knowing God's appointments. And then ultimately from pure motives. The very last thing I think that can trip up uh, believers, even, even if they start right, even if they uh, start uh, with everything, all the motivation going into a project can be, can be excellent. But then what happens as the project lingers, as the work follows, as, as you say you're thick in the middle of it, and now maybe the finish line's in sight, and now what's the last little thing that might trip you up uh, in terms of crossing that finish line and, and finishing an assignment for what, uh, what you've been given? Well, this idea here of, of pure motives or selfish ambition. I think that contrast in verse 17 speaks to some of these issues also. The idea of pure motives. And uh, we'll probably we'll say some of it here because it connects very well with chapter 4 and verse 8 and James and, and 1 John. But um, really the, the antithesis of this on the wrong crowd side of things when they're, when they're doing it from selfish ambition. Um, when you're serving the Lord, if it ever crosses your mind about, hey, wait a minute. What am I getting out of this? You know, hey, wait a minute. What, uh, you know, why am I doing this? And what am I getting out of this? And what have they done for me lately? And and or, um, you know, what what kind of recognition am I going to get for this? You know, because especially if that finish line's in sight, you're going, wow, I'm going to build on this, and something's coming up next. And uh, and clearly, you know, I'm man, I've been so awesome in this job. I got some great glory coming up, and 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 it's interesting because that final stage of the test can, can derail things more often than not. It's, it's, it's curious to me. So uh, that last little expression there from pure motives, as it says. We don't want the selfish ambition. We want the pure motives and uh, so forth. All right. So uh, we'll come back on Sunday and take the time to, to spell this all out. Good pleasure, love, God's appointments. Uh, God's appointments are huge. Okay, And uh, We'll have to address that. And then the pure motives, we'll talk about that as well. Philippians 4.8 speaks of purity. It comes up again later in the book. Uh, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, there it is. Whatever is lovely, of good repute, any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. We've got to keep purity front and center. So, All right, we'll uh, pick up there Sunday, Lord willing, and rapture pending. I said that this morning too. If... Um, if I ever get on your nerves or if you ever get sick of it, if, uh, 
if it, does it ever bug you that I mention the rapture so much? I hope it doesn't. But um, I, I mentioned this this morning in Proverbs. I'm not going to stop. If, uh, if you find it irritating, uh, well, okay, uh, you're, you're going to get more irritated. Because the, the um, looking to the return of Christ with eagerness is one of the greatest blessings we have for prompting uh, fervency and diligence and faithfulness and, and keeping short accounts and staying in fellowship, confessing as soon as you can. And it's always a good reminder, particularly if you're dealing with a health test or a marriage test or a financial test or whatever, any kind of test. Does it make a difference knowing that the trumpet could sound tonight? So who cares? <laughs> you know, all that stuff that can linger and whatever, it all goes away when the trumpet sounds, so don't sweat it. Stay faithful, stay faithful today. And... Uh, We'll see you here, there, in the air. All right? Yes, ma'am? I just want to ask something real quick. Huh? You know, about the rapture and things and encouragement. Okay. Um, the trumpet sounding tonight. Are there things that have to happen first that aren't happening? Not, or, nothing. I don't know. I'm yeah, yeah. Very new. Yeah, yeah. That is an amazing question. It could happen right now. That's right. So let me repeat that because um, there's people listening on MP3 that couldn't hear that. The question is, are, are there any prophecies or events or things, any conditions that have to happen before the rapture of the church? And the answer is no. It is an imminent event. It has always been an imminent event. When Paul wrote First Thessalonians, it was an imminent event. And so there is nothing that has to happen. And we might see some things that do happen. We saw the founding of the modern state of Israel. We see the, I mean, we see things but none of those are necessary, and, and there remains nothing that has to happen. It could, uh, it could happen right now, before my closing prayer. Isn't that great? And my closing prayer is happening right now. So pray with me, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your truth. And I thank you for brothers and sisters that have uh, questions, and they're learning, and they're growing, and it's a, it's a thrill, Father, that... Um, that uh, so many brothers and sisters are hungry and they want to know the truth and and i thank you father for that and i pray that each one of us we would never grow complacent that we would never think that we know uh enough or that we know it all or we know anything father we just want to continue to grow and continue to learn and most of all we want to be found faithful when that trumpet does sound father because any moment we could be snatched up and and i pray that it is tonight father and uh if it's not then uh we're sad about the delay but we're also thankful, Father, that uh, we get another opportunity to, uh, to proclaim Christ to unbelievers, friends, loved ones. Uh, Father, if, uh, there, there, there are folks that we love that, would, that will still be here if uh, the trumpet sounded right now. And uh, we wouldn't want that, Father. We don't want that. So uh, we want to make use of the time uh, while we have it. And uh, yet we look for you at, every, at any moment. So thank you for this teaching. Uh, teach us from Philippians. Teach us to be on the right side of this equation. In, uh, in grace and love and truth and purity and uh, help us to, to serve you in a manner that maximizes your good pleasure. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.